Hey, g'day everyone. Um, I get to read the Bible for us now, so if you'd like to read along, that would be pretty cool. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, and it can be found on page 1187. So while you're looking up that, I'll wish all the best. Happy birthday to my brother Mike. And that counts as your present. Seriously. But we're focused. Okay. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you about before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to get us to pray. Just turn on. That was my... There we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can be here today. And I pray, Lord, as we look at your word, that you would speak to our hearts, particularly on some of the more difficult matters. And Father, help us to lead lives and to live them in a way that honours you and brings you glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are knee-deep into a series on 1 Thessalonians. We're at chapter 4. And there's some interesting, difficult things that uh, we're going to look at today, and that's where we're up to in terms of going through 1 Thessalonians. I want to start, though, by just reflecting on some of the changes to the way cartoons have come to us over the years. Uh, And there is method in the madness. Now, when I grew up, uh, you didn't have a whole range of cartoons to look at. The classic one that you grew up knowing, and this is amongst them, is uh, Charlie Brown. And I was looking at some of the ones that were there that you could uh, get off the internet, and there was a great one. I was trying to find one that just had one frame uh, with the cartoon, and Lucy was in it, and she's just so mean. Uh, and if you and all the eight o'clockers, it's interesting how we will go through the day. Uh, they'll relate to the Charlie Brown more than the later ones. Um, and I just thought I can't do it, but here's a classic one. And Charlie was just such a pessimist, and you can see this. Someday we'll all die, Snoopy. <laughs> And I just used to love Snoopy, true, but on all other days, we will not. (laughs) Now, that was when I grew up in the uh, early 70s. But you get to the 90s, and the classic cartoons were made by Gary Larson. 
the far side. And uh, they're a bit difficult to put on the screen. Writing's a bit small, but those who know Gary Larson, great sense of humour, often with animals involved. Um, it's interesting, my kids now, they don't look at cartoons, uh, they look at memes. And I remember my kids talking about memes. I'm going, what is a meme? And I looked it up for you, for those who don't know what a meme is. No one at 8 o'clock knew what a meme was, it's worth saying. Um, a meme is an image, video, piece of text, typically humorous in nature, that's copied and spread rapidly by internet users, often with slight variations. Here's a classic one. Um, Kim Kardashian, when you aren't really sure what you're famous for. That's Kim Kardashian. Now, there's some classic ones with political leaders. I thought it's a bit too close to the bone to uh, have our current past batch of political leaders. Uh, I didn't want to offend anyone. Let me just say some of our locals have uh, given us lots of fodder for memes. My apologies to the Americans in the house this morning, but Donald Trump, he just he's such good fodder. Scientists have discovered a caterpillar that looks just like Donald Trump's hair. <laughs> so that's a classic meme for you, okay? Now, I'm going to show one more that sums up the spirit of the age we're living in. And it did remind me a bit of Wollongong. Let me say, don't tell my Wollongong friends. Do not tell me how to live my life. And I do love that. Um, and I love the guys there. They do remind me of some of the guys I used to hang out with down there. Uh, but that's the age we're in. And I put that up because two reasons. Life has changed so rapidly in the last 60 years. And Charlie Brown, I mean, no one knows Charlie Brown in terms of our young generation, apart from the movie that came out. Uh, recently. Um, life is just full of stuff that comes at us all the time. And the spirit of the age is, do not tell me how to live my, uh, live my life. And so it's not just the cartoons have evolved, but the whole spirit of our culture has evolved. And one of the fundamental beliefs today is, don't tell me how to live my life. And we come to a passage where Paul wants to tell us how to live our lives. And he is instructing us on how to live our lives. And it really runs across the grain of this thought that my individual freedoms are what are most important in life. And so if you've got your Bibles open, I do want you to open up to page 1187, we're at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And before we get to the chapter, it's worth just picking up the context for those who haven't been here the last couple of weeks. Chapter 1, he assures them that their experience of God in the gospel was genuine. Uh, they watched, they listened, they observed the way God was at work in the Thessalonians' lives. And he just says, I, I thank God for how God's worked in you. And then in chapter 2, he basically goes on to talk about his own love for them and that his um, leaving them was not because he didn't love them, it's because he was run out of town and he wants to assure them of his love for them and then to urge them, lastly, to persevere and that their life together is so important. And now he turns to other matters. Chapter 4, verse 1, let me read to you. As for other matters, in other words, he's kind of turning now to talk about um, what's happening. He says, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And he wants to now look at some of the key issues that they're confronted with in terms of their lives, and in particular, their bodies. 
and how they use their bodies to please God. And the letter at a high level is all about how you live to please God while you wait for him to return. And that's why he says, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God as in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And so there are certain things that he instructed them on in terms of Christian living and lifestyle that he now wants to repeat and encourage them and speak to them about. And there's three issues that come up here in this chapter. Um, There's firstly the issue of sexuality. Uh, There's secondly the issue of love. And then thirdly, uh, he has a short um, section thinking about the whole nature of work and our public lives. Most of though what he wants to deal with here is the very difficult topic of sexual immorality. And because that's most of what he wants to say, most of my message is going to be about this difficult topic. Now, it's worth saying, um, I'm dealing with it because it's here in the letter before us. No doubt it's a difficult topic for some of us here today. But let's listen to what God has to say to us through the Apostle Paul, who writes with the authority of the Lord Jesus. And that's what he says in verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. In other words, These words are words from God through the Lord Jesus to the Thessalonians and they're the same for us today. And the first thing he wants to say is this, avoid sexual immorality. Verse 3, have a look. It says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this manner matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister i want to look at a number of things firstly uh, what does paul say about sexual immorality what he says is uh, that we need to have um, sanctified lives and that we should avoid sexual immorality it's very clear this is not a difficult passage to understand in terms of what he's saying and it's worth noting he's not saying to avoid sex but rather sexual immorality. The word that is used here is from a Greek word, and it's where we get pornography from. It's pornea. And you can understand why we have the word pornography. Pornea, sexual immorality, and graphos, uh, graphic. uh, The depiction graphically of sexual immorality is what pornography literally means. And it's a term that comes first in the Old Testament. And you see it there mentioned as a word a number of times. It's described in a lot of detail, particularly in the laws of Moses. Now, when you get to the New Testament, what happens is that Jesus picks up this word and this concept and basically reinforces what Moses taught in the Old Testament. So he doesn't shy away from it. A classic example is Mark chapter 7 when he's reflecting on what is it that makes us unclean before God as he critiques the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were always concerned about externals, not internal heart religion. And he said, what makes you unclean is not your hands being dirty or cups and saucers being dirty or unclean. It's actually what comes out of your heart and the actions that flow from that. And one of those that he says, Mark chapter 7 is a classic example, is sexual immorality. Paul then, when he writes to the churches, gives more description about what that means. 
And if I could sum it up this way in terms of what sexual immorality or porneia means, uh, when you take in the Old Testament, Jesus and Paul in the New Testament, I'd want to say this, sex is a beautiful activity that's designed by God for within marriage between a man and a woman in order to unify their relationship. And when you look at Genesis chapters 2 and 3, what you see particularly in chapter 2 is that sex is given there to unify Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, in their marriage state. And there's a beautiful description that they are naked and unashamed together. And so there's a very positive thing that the Bible wants to say about uh, sex. It's a beautiful gift of God to a married couple. It's pleasurable, it's beautiful, and importantly, it's very powerful. And its power is that it binds a husband and a wife together in one of the most mysterious and profound ways so that they become one. And so don't hear me saying I'm against sex. I'm all for sex in the right context. But sex outside of that is wrong because it's against the design for what God has given it for. And it's so powerful, it has a negative impact in all sorts of ways when it's wrongly used. And so when you go through the scriptures, sexual immorality includes any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, including pornography. Now, we are in 2019, and just as comics and cartoons have changed immensely over the last 60 years, so has our understanding of sex and sexuality and what is right and wrong. I remember being a young minister, shocked back in the late 90s, uh, with a couple of specific things which spoke about how culture had changed. Um, there was a young couple from the country who'd moved down. They were a lovely couple, Chris and Kathy. And they didn't have a lot of church background, but they just started coming to church and I discovered they were just living together. And they just had no idea that this was outside of God's plan. And that to be a Christian meant that you would be married if you were to engage in sexual activity and not live together. They ended up becoming Christians and they got their life right under God. I won't go into all the details. I remember another couple we had. Uh, Tamara was a Christian lady and she started going out with Roddy, who was a new Christian from uh, the Cessnock region. And he was a tradie uh, and they were from working class stock, beautiful people. And Tamara went back to meet the parents up at Cessnock. And I think they were about 21. And the family, in good faith and good conscience, and not really um, thinking it would be offensive in any way, they were beautiful people, the parents, just prepared a queen-size bed for Tamara and Rodney to stay in overnight. And Tamara just turned up and she was shocked, coming from a Christian family. It was like, no, I need a separate bed. And she wasn't wanting to offend the parents, but it was just this sense of actually, no, we're not going to sleep together until we're married. And you saw here the old culture and the new culture clashing incredibly. Now, Paul writes words that to today's culture, we've gone even further than that. And they are a great challenge for us as to what we make of it. Let me just say this. 
what he writes here was just as challenging to the culture of the day for the Thessalonians. Their culture in many ways was worse than today's culture when it comes to sex and sexuality. Uh, Let me give you a quote from Demosthenes. I can't pronounce his name very well. Uh, He was a contemporary of Plato, professional writer. He wanted to be an orator, but um, he had a stutter. And so he wrote a lot of speeches and wrote a lot of things. Here is one of his um, treaties in terms of thinking about the family and the whole place of sex and sexuality. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of the household. Now, I'm not wanting to defend that in any way, shape or form for obvious reasons, but it is part and parcel of the ancient world and how they viewed life. Family was very important in terms of the name and the heritage provided, but what you did with your body was irrelevant at one level. And it was a normative thing that you would have a mistress off the side, and I mean, it's an appalling thought, but just for the sake of pleasure. And concubines for the daily care of our persons. I don't even want to think about what that might mean. And so what Paul wrote in that day would have been completely swimming against the tide just as it is now today in 2019 in Sydney. And what Paul was saying to them then was, you need to understand God's design for marriage and sexuality. And marriage is between a man and a woman. Jesus taught that very clearly in Matthew chapter 19. And sex is to be within that context and only in that context. And it should be honoured by all. Now, if that's not clear, it's interesting when you read the book of Hebrews. uh, It reinforces this. Listen to what the writer says in chapter 13 of verse uh, 4. Marriage should be honoured by all. Speaking to the Christians there who were listening to the letter. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So that's what Paul says. Avoid sexual immorality because you are God's holy people. Why does he teach it? Well, the first reason is holiness, verse 4. He says you should learn to control your body in a way that's holy and honourable. Now, the word holiness means to be set apart. It's something that's special. And what we need to do is view our bodies as being special under God and we set them apart to serve God with. And so we should honour God with our bodies. Now, if I can go back to the Greek thinker, he was a contemporary of Plato. And his thinking, Plato's thinking, basically posited a split between what was most important, which was your mind, and you could say the spirit with that, and what was least important, in fact not important, was your body. And there was a dualism that took place in the Greek world. What's most important is the ideas. But it's irrelevant what you do with your body. And you can see that expressed in Demosthenes' take on family life, that you know, you've just got a concubine and a mistress off to the side. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It's irrelevant. 
It's the ideas that are most relevant. Now, that thinking still plagues us today in a sense that we think it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. And what Paul says is he learn to control your body in a way that's holy and honourable. Now, if you want some more teaching on this, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he goes into more detail. This is the only second letter he writes. Uh, it's to the first to a Greek-speaking um, church in uh, Thessalonica. When he writes to Corinth, he's obviously had more time to think about it, and he expounds it in more detail about the whole nature of the fact that we are embodied people and what we do with our bodies in the area of sexuality is very important and purity outside of marriage is essential. Now the second reason he says it is love. He says, and in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister and one of the differences between sex and other sins, if I can put it this way, is it typically always involves someone else. Uh, you can sin privately in all sorts of other ways, but sin, uh, sexual sin just necessarily tends to involve someone else. And what he says is, no one, you should not take advantage of a brother or sister. This would be wrong. And that's one of the problems of sexual morality. It's not just that uh, you're caught up in it, but you're caught up and you're affecting someone else with it. And the loving thing to do is to not drag them in. Now, the third reason, and this is the most heavy, is God's judgment. And I think this is the most difficult thing for us to hear today. Paul says that there are consequences for those who ignore God on this. And I want us to listen carefully to what he says. It's a heavy word that he finishes with here. And it's a word that would be easy for me to overlook and ignore. But it would be wrong of me to do that. He says at the end of verse 6, The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you, and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Hebrews 13 has said the same thing. God will judge the adulterer, the sexually immoral. 1 Corinthians 6, he elucidates with a bit more detail about what that judgment means because he doesn't say what that means, just that you will face judgment. And 1 Corinthians 6 is the famous passage that says you will not inherit the kingdom of God, the sexually immoral. He has a list of uh, other people caught up in sin. And I want to say this to us today. Even though this is an area that is totally against the grain of our, of our culture. Um, our culture in this area speaks of how far it has moved away from God and his plans for humanity and the licentiousness of our culture. And God is not to be trifled with or ignored. He will carry out what he says. You cannot carry on in sexual immorality without consequences. And to flaunt that is to rebel totally with God. And you'll have to give account for that on Judgment Day. So what have we seen? Well, what Paul says is avoid sexual immorality. Why he says it? Holiness, love and God's judgment. 
I want to just stop and just get us to think for a moment about this. Why as Christians do we struggle to accept this today? And I say this because in my 30 years of being in ministry, I've seen people who claim to be Christians having no problems with living together, not being married, sex outside of marriage, the list goes on. And this is not just the case with, if I can say, people caught up in pornography. I know numbers of Christians have been trapped in addictive behaviours with pornography here at St Matthews. The difficulty with pornography is it's not that people go looking for it, it comes looking for you this day. With the internet, with emails, we are bombarded by it and we literally are often just two clicks away. And the power of pornography to rewire our brains such that we get caught in addictive behaviours is mind-blowing. And the ensnarement and the guilt that people are caught up in is awful. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that people are flaunting what is very clear in Scripture in how they're behaving with others. And I want to give you three thoughts. Firstly, our moral intuitions have changed over the last 60 years. The reason I started with the evolution of comics was just to give a very concrete example of how the world has changed. And one of the ways we've changed is our moral intuitions have changed. There's a very helpful and profound book by a guy called Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. And it's the book, The Righteous Mind, and it's why good people disagree in politics and religion. And he's basically examining why is it you can have one set of facts and people can come to two different, very con different conclusions about it in politics and religion. And the conclusion he comes to is this, we make our decisions based on our intuitions, not, not actually on the evidence itself. And if I could put my own spin on it, it's our gut feeling, it's what our hearts are saying, not what our minds are reading. And typically, the mind comes in to justify what the heart wants. And what our intuitions say to us should be the case. And hate speaks of the following factors as determinative in terms of our intuitive decision-making. First one, does a given course of action seem harmful or not? Let's just think about that one. Is it harmful or not? Now, our culture has deemed that sex outside of marriage is not harmful. That's just a given. Obviously, they haven't talked to spouses who've had their spouse cheat on them. They haven't spoken to people caught up in the addiction of pornography. And the power of sex is that it has an impact on people to bind people together. And people who become addicted to sex lose their capacity for emotional closeness. It has a tremendous impact for negative. But that's not what we're told. And so our world thinks, no, it's not going to harm anyone. Does it seem freeing or oppressive? Well, our world says it seems oppressive to have instructions from God to say, keep it within these boundaries. When the reality is, it's actually freeing 
But that's not how our culture is reading things. So is it harmful or not? Is it freeing or oppressive? Is it fair or discriminatory? Now, when you put those factors together, they will determine our moral conclusions. And our moral conclusions now being determined by our culture is that you can basically have sex any way you want. And it's not going to harm you, even though my experience pastorally is it absolutely does. And the slogan of the 60s hippie revolution said, make love, not war. And ever since that day, the world has changed. Second thought, because of the way culture has changed, our view of sex and marriage has changed. And sex for many has been uncoupled from something that was designed for God, by God for within marriage, for procreation to just recreation. We've uncoupled it from that. And marriage subsequently, consequently, is no longer a life covenant ordered towards procreation, but rather a flexible romantic contract that enables romantic feelings to be fulfilled, but can also be dissolved if either party chooses to. And that is the culture we're in, where sex is recreation, marriage is optional, and at best is just a contract to enable a better form of romantic partnership. And then underneath all of that, probably the greatest change in our culture is this, the evolution of the individual rights for freedom. Now, let me say, as Christians, we absolutely want to protect the rights of the individual, but not over and against other issues. It's not an ultimate right. The ultimate right is actually the glory of God and living in a way that honours Him. And so our culture keeps telling us, don't tell me what to do with our life, hence the meme. We hate it when people tell us what to do. And so when it comes to this particular issue, the last thing people want to do is hear the church tell them what to do. Now let me say, I'm not here to tell the world what to do on this particular issue. I'm here to say to us as people who know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are to know Him and honour Him, you need to use your body in a way that brings glory to Him by protecting the beauty of sex to within a marriage relationship. I've written some words down for us as a church to say today. For some of us, this will not be an issue, thankfully. Uh, you're leading God-honouring lives when it comes to your sexuality and you're seeking to use your bodies in a way that honours Him. And I just want to say, keep doing it. God will bless you. To the marriage, I do want to say, those who are married here today, sex is a positive gift for, ma for marriage to bind a marriage together. And if you are married, keep doing it. Keep making love. That is what your minister is saying to you today, okay? When they ask you what was said at church on Sunday, you can say, my minister said, keep making love to my wife or my husband. And make time not just for the practicalities of marriage, but also the romance of marriage. We need both. We need to be practical, but we also need to be romantic. And a healthy marriage will have both. To the single, 
Sex is a very positive gift for marriage to bind it together. Let it stay in that place. And seek to find contentment in relationships through friendship and community. And avoid having sex as a single person. And so honour God with your body. And I want to say to the marriage, we have a significant role, an essential role to play in this, because what the church mustn't be is a category of those who are single and those who are married. There should be a very healthy mix of singles and marriage together in our community life and in our hospitality and in our gatherings outside of the church building where we catch up with each other, whether we're single or married, and we include each other in our lives together because one of the most important things is that, and I think this is why people are driven to have sex outside of marriage, is that need to feel that they are loved and they belong. And marrieds and single people together need to build a healthy community, and we need to build that here at St Matthews and include people in our relationships. Fourth, to those who are caught up in sexual immorality as defined by the Bible. Uh, my encouragement is that you need to get out of that situation. And the wisdom of Scripture is it's never by half measures. It's that you just need to stop and flee. There are so many different scenarios that you could look at this morning in that. I don't want to do that in any detail, but I do want to say I'd be very happy or the pastoral staff would be happy to talk to people about that. But if you are caught up in any way, you need to hear what Paul says and the Lord Jesus is saying to us through him that you can't keep living this way and naming Christ as your Lord and Saviour. You need to flee or God's judgment will come. To those who have failed in this area in the past but have repented, I do want to say that I know sermons like these can inadvertently be painful reminders of past indiscretions. And I want you to hear what Psalm 103 says. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And if you have a history of failing here, you would not be alone. The wonderful news of the gospel is there is hope for everyone who turns to Christ. And our past indiscretions are removed as far as the east is from the west. It's such a beautiful metaphor to say they are gone. And I want to say do not define yourself by your past mistakes. Define yourself as someone who is loved in Christ. All of us have got past mistakes in this area, I suspect, or many of us will. And the gospel is good news. It says there is freedom, there is forgiveness, and there is a fresh start to any and all who will turn to Christ. And to us all, I want to say this, the call of the gospel is at complete odds with our society. We must not be put off by that. Rather, we must treasure sex as a powerful and beautiful gift of God to bind married couples together, 